And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Gospel of Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I think is uh, somewhat familiar and seek to apply it to the topic of ministry and service in the body of Christ. I want to begin by asking you a question about a word. Um, So here's the word. What is your response to the word attitude? What's your response to the word attitude? I think for most of us, our response to the thought of attitude is usually somewhat negative. Usually we find ourselves saying to someone, you know, so-and-so's attitude today really stunk. Or to your child, you need to change your attitude. Okay, and we're usually thinking of attitude as something that we're addressing from the perspective of that which is uh, corrective. And this morning, I, I want to offer you uh, a definition of the word attitude. I, I don't know if you ever do this with you. If you have a smartphone, you can say to it, Siri, define the word attitude. Okay, here's the definition that Siri gave me. Attitude is a, just think about this, it is a settled way of thinking. Okay, meaning it's not the spontaneous flare-ups in your life. It is the settled way of thinking that is reflected in a person's behavior. Okay, a settled way of thinking of how I see things that is expressed in how I live my life. Okay, which then would argue something like this, that your attitude, is something that is very important. Okay, it is a, 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 a very important part of our lives. If you're a parent, you know that attitude matters. If you've been a coach and, and coach people in sports, you know that the attitude that people bring matters. If you're an employee, if you're a teacher, uh, if you function in any area of relationship, you know that attitude matters. And the question becomes Why? Why does my attitude matter? Well, my attitude matters because it directly affects my life. Here's the way Jesus said it. He said, as a man thinks in his heart, heart being just the seat of one's emotions, kind of the essence of who they are at the heart of the person. As a man thinks in his heart, what does Jesus say? So he is. So that that settled disposition of heart is what comes out of your life. Jesus also said this, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So those responses that I have, that behavior that comes out in various circumstances is rooted in who I am. In Proverbs 4.24, Solomon said it this way, he said, guard your heart diligently because life emanates from or springs from it. You've had those circumstances in your life where something popped out in a moment because of pressure and disposition inside. What came out told you who you are. And so Jesus says, guard your heart. Solomon said to his son, watch your heart with diligence. Watch your attitude. Watch that disposition that's driving your life because life springs from it. Now, I want to go into a discussion about a key sign of a healthy church, and that is a healthy church is a place where people are dedicated in a predispositional way to serve and minister to one another. And that 
service is going to move in two ways. It's going to move inward. That is our care for one another, which we'll talk about in a little more detail next week. But it's also going to be service and ministry that moves outward. Okay, if you study the life of Christ, you'll find that Jesus, Jesus chose 12, who we could call the early church or the seedbed of the church. And he poured himself into them, but he also had a substantial amount of his life and energy that was poured outside of that group of 12. So you find that ministry, service that God calls for from us, needs to move inwardly towards one another, but it also needs to find manifestation out in the world that we live in. It's multidimensional. The church is to be a place where people naturally serve one another. There are over 65 commands in the New Testament that deal with the issue of our service to each other. And what I would argue this morning is, if you don't have the right attitude, you won't find yourself doing the right actions. Okay, so what's going on in my heart towards God and towards others becomes vital in the actions that I am then called to. So this morning we'll focus on the attitude, the heart of a servant, and next week, we're going to look at the actions of ministry or service in the body of Christ. We're going to break it in that way. So, it's about my attitude that leads to spirit-driven action. That's what it's about. So, I want us to look at Mark chapter 10. And I want to begin reading in verse 35. And then we'll come back and set context here a little bit. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's clarified, I believe in Mark, on four occasions why he's going to Jerusalem. To be delivered over, to be betrayed, to suffer, to die, and raise again on the third day. He has made that abundantly clear through this book on numerous occasions to the people that now speak. Verse 35. Then James and John, and just to... Set them in context. James and John are part of the 12, but amongst the 12, what group are they part of? Peter, James, and John. Do those names ring a bell? Okay, they're part of the inner circle. So within the 12, there are three that Jesus has a closer relationship with, if I can say it that way. They were the special objects of his teaching and instruction. They went onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Later, they will go into the Garden of Gethsemane. They are leaders that Jesus is putting a finger on early on to, to, to kind of launch them in their ministry later. So that's what we're talking about, inner circle here. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's one of those things you got to stop and think about that for a second. Sometimes as a parent, you think that's where your kids are coming from. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And their immediate knee-jerk response is, we can. We're there. So what do you learn here? You learn that Peter was not the only impetuous, overreaching disciple. He was one of a group of 12 who had very similar characteristics. He just happened to be a spokesperson. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup. And he knows that at the end of the day, they will be his followers. 
You will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with. But to sit at my right or left. To give honor. To give what you're requesting now. Is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an astonishing text. It, to me, is in many ways most astonishing because of where it fits into the three years of Christ's public ministry with the disciples. We're getting on to the end. This is the last journey. I think in Mark I count three journeys to Jerusalem. This is the third at the end of the third year of Christ's ministry when he is going to Jerusalem for the purpose previously disclosed, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, and 11. Each chapter gives a description of what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. It's in that setting that this encounter with Jesus occurs. Now, The text tells us, verse 32, that they're on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples are astonished. They're in amazement at the move. And they're thinking kingdom. That's why their request is, hey, when you come in, when you reveal your glory, when we get to Jerusalem, can one of us sit in the seats of, each of us sit in the seats of prominence? While those who followed were afraid. Because anytime someone led an insurrection against Rome, the put-down was heavy-handed. And so there was a desire to see what would happen, but a fear about the proximity to what would happen. Heads would roll, and lives would be lost. But if you think about what Jesus has already told him, that notion of going and setting up a kingdom and having seats to sit on is so out of play. They're going there for him to give his life. And there is a miscommunication amongst the disciples, a lack of understanding. In verses 33 and 34, as they go, he says, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the high priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock, spit on, flog, and kill. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. It's on the heels of that context that that section I read to you comes into play. It's astonishing. And common. They're the inner circle. They're asking for a place of prominence in his glory. And, and you have to think to yourself as you read this. Are they, like, are they totally deaf to what he's been saying? Is it that they simply didn't hear it? And what I would argue is that their disposition towards wanting prominence was so strong. That it, it acted as earplugs when Jesus spoke. They, it, what G, when Jesus talked about that, it didn't register. It's going to be later that, that Jesus is going to say to Peter, Peter, I'm going to die for you. And Peter's like, over my dead body. So you, you get this sense that their attraction to Jesus in these early years is about what's in it for them. 
It's an attitude that's self-centered and self-serving. They're, they sound very much like Americans, don't they? That we're following Jesus and he promises good things. He feeds many, he heals people. And there's a sense in which there's an attraction to Christ that follows those lines. And it is that that Jesus is now beginning to confront. Verse 38, after they express their feeling, Jesus floats in with probing questions. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he, he offers them a way out. Can you drink the cup that I will drink and be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? Now, what is he saying? The way of the Savior is a way of suffering. Folks, if you go into the Old Testament, you'll find that the cup of, that Jesus is talking about is the cup of wrath. It's the cup he looks at in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the wrath that is deserved by sinners, that he would partake of in his death on the cross. There is no literal cup that he's going to take. The cup becomes a picture of what God should pour out on us. And Jesus looks at that cup and says, Father, if there's any way for it to pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, and thine be done. And that's the attitude of Christ. The attitude of Christ was a mindset that desired to serve selflessly and sacrificially for the benefit of others. That attitude always precedes godly actions in the life of the church, always. And so Jesus says to his disciples, can you? And their response is yes. And then he, he, he makes an interesting observation for them because he says to them in verse 39, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism, baptism that I'm baptized with. But to seek places of prominence is not in the cards. It's, it's not mine to give. And so it's a question that in many ways in light of the context is very misdirected. So I want to unpack this text then from, from the perspective of what happens from verse 41 and following. And I'm just going to give you three basic descriptions of flow of this text. Because I want you to realize that what the two are wrestling with is normative amongst the early church. Verse 41, it says, when the ten heard about this, this being the conversation, the request, the discussion. They thought to themselves, the nerve. But why does it upset them? This is what they wanted. And what I want you to realize from this is that this struggle with attitude is a common struggle that we all live with and wrestle with. I don't want you to think if you struggle with such thinking that you're alone. Okay? There's a desire in all of us that creeps up that we want recognition. We want acknowledgement for what we do. And we're not all that disappointed when people find out the hidden thing they know about it. There's, there's a part in all of us that is somewhat satisfied or gratified in a sad way, when we get credit for things done for the glory of God. And we live with it. We wrestle with this. We wrestle, wrestle with what it is to live in humility, deep humility and brokenness before God. While striving to do good for him without wanting credit for it. 
And we wrestle in the area of attitude because attitude determines behavior. And if my attitude slips into craving people's approval, I begin to live differently. So the first thing Jesus is going to do for the disciples, he's going to issue to them a warning. In verse 42, he calls them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. So the warning is something like this. The attitude that James and John are reflecting is very much like the attitude of the world around them. And, and what happens? What happens to us as believers is that we, we live in an environment and the environment, the mindset of our world gets on us and gets in us and begins to affect us. That desire for acknowledgement, that desire to be somebody can be very, very strong. We live in a world where greatness that we admire is measured by how many people or how many dollars one controls. And folks, I'm going I'm to say it this way. I have found myself falling into the trap of admiring and talking about high achievers. People that have high positions. I will tell you in my flesh, there is something about that that I have interest in. Okay, I do not have participation in it. But there's, in a sad way, we like rubbing shoulders with prominent people. There's something about that that does something, and, and it's what we tend to talk about very quickly. High accomplishment, high achievement. And I would say that in this text, Jesus, Jesus is giving at least a caution, but I think it's more, I think it's a strong warning that we don't spend time always admiring high achievement while we acknowledge that we should do our best and admire excellence and pursue that for the glory of God. But this text is saying it can be pursued for the wrong reasons. And I think we need to be careful. If you turn back two pages to chapter 8 and verse 31... You find that Peter, listening to this, has already been down this road. 8.31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Meaning, there, there could be no confusion as to whether the disciples had heard why he was going to Jerusalem. Which makes the request of James and John even more out of order. He has been clear plain. But their desire for the prominence that comes with Jesus is overriding the desire to see the servant of God do what he has come to do. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That the began to rebuke him indicates that there was a dialogue of disgust on the part of Peter. You're the king. You're the son of man. What's this talk of dying? What's this talk of selfless, sacrificial, humble service? When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
He judged him. Get behind me. Satan. You know what Satan loves? Satan loves it when Tim Hoff wants acknowledgement. Because he can make hay on that day. Folks, I want you to understand this. In the public proclamation of the word of God, other desires can mix in. And if, if you function in any public capacity, you know that you have to wrestle down the craving of the human heart for people's approval while doing the will of God. And Jesus wants Peter to get it right. Why? Because Peter, James, and John have a vital role coming in a very humble service and ministry for God. And so Jesus bears down on Peter. He says, Peter, you are a dangerous ground, my friend. You are opening a door where Satan can enter in and begin to disturb the work of God in your life. And so the warning comes very strong. Here's what he says to him. Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, your mindset, what's driving you, your attitude is getting askew. And if it gets too far askew, the evil one will make hay on that day and bring ruin into your life. So I would challenge you to think about this text as a warning to watch for worldly thinking that for many of us, okay, if you're immune to this, just you can tune out. But if you're in touch with a natural tendency that is prevalent in the human heart to want to be served rather than to serve, this text is for you. Okay, this should come to you as a calm assurance that when that tendency is present, the Savior cries out by the Spirit and says, no, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, it's humility. And it frees you, that attitude will free you to serve this worldly thinking tends to seep in and infiltrate because we are affected by the context and environment that we live in and none of us are immune to it. And I hope you can be honest today and say, you know what, I am often surprised by the thoughts that run through my mind. That's what I find in my life. It's what Peter, James, and John wrestled with. You see, following Jesus is not about what's in it for us, our better life, our prosperity. That's a false gospel. If you're following Jesus because you want the perks of following Jesus, you're not following the right Jesus. And Jesus warns us that this desire, this craving for more is insidious and strong and can be satanic. Guard your heart so that pride doesn't watch it, doesn't, doesn't drive it. And secondly, verse 43, notice what Jesus says. He says, okay, Gentiles like prominence. They love to lord it over people. In other words, power is seen in how many you have under you, how many you control. Therefore, really, how many serve your bidding and call? And Jesus, in stark contrast to that, says in verse 43, not so with you. This is in the form of a double negative in the original language. Never not so. 
meaning stand and resist that tendency. And, and what is he going to do? He's going to call for a new mindset. Instead, in place of that natural tendency, and folks, I want to say this, the best way to fight the desire for prominence or acknowledgement or all the things that in our pride we want, the best way to fight against that is to embrace a life of service and humility for the right reasons. And as you begin to move away from those desires and begin to embrace a Christ-like heart and desire, you will find that God begins to change you inside out. You can rebuke yourself for thinking the bad thoughts. What you really do is say, God, I take that captive and I make it obey Christ. Okay, to, to have that desire for acknowledgement, to have that desire for more or prominence is natural. It's natural. You live in a world where there are many upwardly mobile people. It affects you. It's normal. Take it captive. Make it obey Christ. Take it captive in humility. Make it obey Christ. And don't, feel, don't grovel in guilt over the thoughts that run through your mind. Take them captive by the power of the Spirit of God. Make it obey Christ. Not that this. That's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. He's not going to beat up on them long. It's just very quick. You're acting like them, James and John. You want to rule. Oh, you want to sit at my right and left hand. You want the places of prominence at the expense of others. Not so. Instead, Let's read along now in verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant. The word there is deacon. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And the word there for slave is the strongest word for lowly service. One writer said it this way. He said, the best way to think about a slave is a slave does not think about himself. I thought, God, I. I would love to be free from the tyranny of self. I would love to by the Spirit, so understand and embrace the mindset of a servant that I come to a place where my natural disposition is to think about others. Folks, do you understand that this is the essence of what it is to lose your life? And isn't this what Jesus calls us to? If you're going to follow me, if you, and Christian means follower of Christ, little Christ, it's what it means. So if you want to follow Christ, you need to make a decision about living for the benefit and blessing and encouragement of others. And if you don't want that, don't follow Jesus. You will have the most frustrating life on the planet. But if you want to follow him, I believe this text, become a slave, become someone who doesn't think about themselves, but thinks about living for the benefit and encouragement of another. Because if your identity, you understand that your identity in Christ changes, all of the pressure that you're fighting will go away. Because you understand in Christ, I am what Christ is. I am a servant. I am a slave. I can, I can be free from the bondage of selfishness and self-centeredness. There's part of that that scares me. 
but there's a lot of that that I want. I want to know what it is to be free from these desires in this realm that can haunt us and dominate and control us. Verse 44 takes this home. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And, and I love that when, when Jesus is explaining this, he says, you must become slave. And then he qualifies the word slave with a preposition and a noun. You must become slave of or for the benefit of all. And that's where I'm kind of like, okay. <laughs> I like being selective in my service. Jesus was not selective. He says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. That is, become a slave. Say goodbye to your desires. And become a slave of all. That is strong. But it's categoric. It's unqualified. And folks, that means this. It means every Christian, in every context of your life, it doesn't mean you have to leave your job. It just means you have to go to your job with a new identity doesn't mean you need to leave your, leave your mate. It means you need to get over your pride and start to serve. When I thought of this, this slave of all giving up concern for self, here's the illustration that popped in my mind. My niece recently had a, her fourth child. So she's getting school in the selfless life. I thought a mom with a newborn is the kind of person we should all want to be. Where life is lived for the benefit in a healthy way of someone else. See, there's nothing tainted by that unless my desire is to be a good mom so the people admire me. I'm just telling you how I would, what I would wrestle with. You see, it's possible to pursue being a good mom because I want this child to know God. I want them to be taken care of and do that with excellence. But I can do that so I can be seen as a good parent. And now I flipped it on its head. I also thought this as I studied this text. I thought when the disciples pursued ladder climbing, prominence, they sowed dissension in the early church. The others were indignant. They weren't unhappy. They were ticked off. And I thought how beautifully humility as it flows from the heart of Christ by the spirit implanted in our hearts and begins to transform us. How much unity there would be in a church where everybody said, what would be best for all? And if that heart could take hold, that mothering heart that lives, lives literally and sacrificially for the existence of that child. I thought, wow. Slave of all, not getting up my life, no. But as I go into all the areas of my life, to be a slave, I'm thinking of some of you that, that teach in the schools, right? That I, I am a servant to everyone here. That's freedom. Because a freedom, a, 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 a freedom, a servant isn't 
living to preserve reputation. They live to serve. And in that, they're free from worrying about how they look. Do you see? And if you get a group of people that are genuinely concerned about each other, it is transformational for the unity that it brings into a body. Think about what would happen at the Chapel of Warren Valley if as a church family we said, you know what? We need to be servants of one another like Christ. It would unleash within us a, such a beautiful thing, so attractive that the world watching and viewing us when they come and see, we begin to see the glory of God. Now, I, this text ends with the gospel. It, it goes to the heart of Christian attitude. It goes to, to what, what drives humility and gratitude in the heart of believers. Verse 45, notice what it says. Jesus says, for, and, and you have to set it up with the way the verbiage is, for even the Son of Man. So it's kind of like, okay, you guys are wrestling with greatness. You want to sit right and left hand. You want to be somebody. I'm calling you to serve. You're not that special. You're loved by God, but, you know, it's not like God looked down from heaven and said, Tim Hoff, that's a God to have. Okay, my wife did that one day, which is an amazing thing to me. Okay, he's a God to have. I, I do not amuse myself with thinking that God looked down and said, I, I, you know, what would heaven be like without him? <laughs> not so disamused. God... came in human flesh and even he the son of man which is Daniel 7 he's on a throne everyone bows down and worships everyone acknowledges his prominence and it's all appropriate because here's what Paul said God forbid that I glory in anything but the cross of Christ so folks there is boasting that's good but it's boasting about servants it's boasting about the servant. For even the highest one, the son of man. And earlier, what did he say? You call me Lord and master. Yes, yes. That's all true. Jesus is denying that. He's, he's using it to, if Christ humbled himself to serve to the point of a slave, get over yourself. If he went from that position to that position, then why can't you get from here to here? That's the point of the argument. Even the one who deserves praise and worship and who in the next chapter will orchestrate the triumphant entry and they will say, oh God, save to Christ himself. That one said, even the son of man didn't come to lord over people to tell them what to do. He came to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. Folks, here's what I can tell you. Nothing will drive gratitude that will drive an attitude of humility like an understanding of the gospel. Nothing. Nothing. And there is something we as the church should glory in over and over and over and over again. It should be the cross of Christ. And we live in an age where many other things get the place of prominence. And may the place of prominence in this church always belong to Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And may his example. As king of kings and lord of lords. All the way down serving us. 
motivate us to step from where we are to become what he wants us to be. And let that, God, give me the attitude that is downwardly mobile for whoever is least in the kingdom is greatest. And if you want to be first, what does Jesus say? Be the first one to sign up for that activity. Be the first one to help in that service. Be known for diligence in getting down on your knees to serve others. Ancient kings lived a life cordoned off from regular common people. If you've watched Downton Abbey, I think my son-in-law calls it Downtown Abbey. If you watch that show, it's all about the stratification in culture. And folks, I want to tell you something. The people lived on the first floor and didn't live in the basement, we're glad they did. And they wanted you to know. They dressed for show. And Jesus says, may it not be so among you. If God has blessed in your life with abundance, with position, go there and serve. He came with position. And he served. In this text, there's two encounters. Jesus with the children. Remember when the children are coming to Christ and Peter's like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, important business here. Going to Jerusalem. No time for children. Why? Because children can't do anything for you. They don't enhance your life. They make your life harder. It's the way it is. And they're a great joy when they leave your house and are self-sustaining. Taxpayers, okay? And what does Jesus do? Whoa, whoa, Peter. What? Bring the children. Because people in the kingdom love to serve. Bring them. And, and, and then he talks about his death. And then at the end of this text, the next thing that happens is Jesus goes on his way to Jerusalem. And sitting beside the road is a man named Blind Bartimaeus. What is he? He thinks Jesus can change his life. And so he interrupts the son of man on his way to Jerusalem to set up his throne so James and John can sit on the right and left. And to James and John, after this, after that, they rebuke him. We're with him. You don't matter today. And Jesus stops the very sovereign purpose of God, freezes in time, goes and meets a need to say to that man, to the son of man, you matter. Even though to the son of men, you may not. And folks, may it never be in our lives that the children, the people that can't do anything for us, or the needy people that always take, somehow become unimportant. Because when that happens, we have destroyed or marred at best the image of Christ reflected in us. Watch your attitude. In John chapter 13, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. When he gets to Peter, what's Peter? Oh, ho, ho. This, is, this is a week later. What's Peter's like, no, 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 my feet. Kings don't wash feet, Jesus. And Jesus completely ignores him and demonstrates his selfless, sacrificial love with the attitude of a servant, washing the feet of those that would deny him. And he gets up and he puts back on his proper attire. And he looks at them and says, if I, your king and Lord, washed your feet, then what is your problem with serving others? You see, folks, Jesus came to leave an example that I would exemplify. In Philippians 2, 5, 
Paul will later say, he humbled himself. He progressed downward and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Folks, that's the progression. That's where God, by Jesus and the work of the Spirit, is moving you. And at the bottom of that ladder, what did Jesus find? Hebrews 12, 3 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what Jesus found at the center of God's will? He found difficulty and he found joy. I think of people in our church family. And I particularly think of Harold and Kelly Swisher. And I am challenged by their life. Because here's two people that retired as engineers from the state of New Jersey, presumably with decent pensions, who had an RV that they planned to travel the country in, who were on a pit crew for a NASCAR team that they thought they would be able to spend more time with. And Harold has a Morton building, three-car garage, with all these old tractor parts. And in his retirement, he was going to put together tractors. And then God saved him. And everything changed. Hey, Harold, why don't you and your wife collect stuff to send to the poorest of the poor? Well, I got plans. Not if you're a servant. Not if you're a servant. Donna and Dave Dietrich are away today, so I can talk about them. It's called gossip. Gossip can be good or bad, okay? They retired from the school early because they wanted to serve others. They planned their life around serving others. Their retirement years for others. Whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. I think of Bob Dietrich over at the Chelsea retirement community pouring his life out. And Bob, love you. A man who lives his life to let others know about Christ. And there are many within our church family that I, I, a selfless heart of service, it may be just one-on-one caring for each other, encouraging each other in various kinds of grief and struggle. Folks, it doesn't have to be like Howard and Kelly. Please understand what I'm saying. But it should be whatever the master wants, he gets. Because I'm a servant. I don't think about myself. And the disciples of Jesus were wrestling with what I wrestle. Hey, Jesus, can I sit on the right or the left? Can I... Be prominent. Can I have you serve me? And Jesus says, no, I already served you. And I left you an example that you would follow in my steps. He said to the disciples on the eve of his betrayal, he said, what you saw me do, go do it. Folks, that's what it is to follow Christ. Lord, what do you want? So I ask you this question this morning. What is... What is the thing that God keeps bringing to your mind, keeps prompting you in your heart, a need that he, he just, and you're fighting it off. And you're resisting, and the result in your life is that there's trouble and there is tension. Because when you fight off and resist God's will, it doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to drudgery. I've been there. And I don't like it. You see, the path to freedom with Christ is Surrender. Giving up is gaining. Going down is ladder climbing. 
I have a friend that said it this way. He said, Tim, I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that I climbed a ladder that was against the wrong building. In a land of opportunity, you have to fight for the mindset of Christ. You do not live in a culture that promotes it. Many of us as parents haven't communicated to our kids, and we need to. We need to encourage them to pursue excellence, to do the best they can. And with whatever God gives you, become a servant. Look at your resources. Look at your time. Look at your family. How can I, how can we, by the grace of God, driven by the Spirit, maximize our impact to the glory of God? You do it by adopting the mindset of a servant and be like Jesus. So what's the thing he wants you to do? Will you, as we close today, say, God, you've been, you've been prompting my heart about that neighbor. You've been prompting my heart about something I need to do with my child. You've been prompting my heart about someone in my community that I know, and, that I know needs help, and I have been preoccupied with my life. But today I realize I'm a servant. And in many ways, I shouldn't have a life like that. And go and do something about it for the glory of God.